0: The Josh Marshall Podcast. We are two days after uh, the final election night of the 2022 midterm election cycle, and someone pointed out to me after uh, you know the, the conclusion with uh, Raphael Warnock winning in in Georgia that he has run five statewide elections in two years, five statewide elections. So the primary in, 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 in 2000 and then a general election and a runoff election in 2000, I'm sorry, 2020 and 2022. So, you know, yeah. Okay. Like we kind of knew that, but it's kind of, it's sort of stunning when you think about it. That's a lot of times to run. I mean, people, you have people who've been in the Senate for 15, 20 years who can't say that, right. You know, you sort of, uh, uh, you know, and a runoff obviously doesn't have quite the dimensions of a full general election campaign. It's kind of a quick redo. And um, it also seems like it might be the last. I saw some, there seems to be a move now, which I think makes sense, kind of like, why don't we just do this with instant runoff? You know, it's basically rank choice voting, same thing. Um, because, you know, uh, you could have, you know, it's kind of as a election observer, I guess at some level, it's kind of cool. Let's do it one more time, right? You know, one more run through. But these things cost a lot of money, cost a lot of money. And I'm not even talking about the political campaigns. Um, You know, that's kind of on them, but it costs the public a lot of money to run a campaign. And there's all these election workers who do all this work. And, um, you know, democracy is important. So it's not like... uh, you know, it's a disaster that, that we have to you have to do it. But still, it's 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 kind of needless. It's kind of needless because it would have been an easy thing uh, in the in the in the general election in Georgia. If you want this thing where you have to get a majority to become senator, which is a certain logic to that. You know, I, I can see that Um, that if you are going to have that, you just would have said, you know, if my guy doesn't win, who's my second choice? Just like they did up in Alaska. And it's the same difference. You know, and and if anything, I've thought sometimes that in this weird, totally irrelevant, but as long as I'm being obsessive kind of way, it gives Georgians a bit different kind of bite at the apple. Because everywhere else, you're voting, not knowing what the global outcome is. So you're in Pennsylvania, you're, you know, you're um, voting for John Fetterman, not knowing is he, is he fifties? is he 51, is he 52? But in Georgia, they get to, they get another look at it again, right? Obviously, if you're a committed partisan either way, that doesn't make any difference. Um, but if you were kind of on the fence in, in round one, and maybe you voted for Warnock, but you're middle of the road, quasi Republican. You didn't want Republicans to be controlling the Senate. And maybe now you say, all right, they they already got control, so I'm gonna go for Warnock just to kind of keep it even it up. And I'm clearly that is not a hypothetical that that had a lot of traction in this cycle since uh, Walker lost a little ground. Um, I guess it'll I guess the final result is something it's a little shy of three percentage points. It's but if you actually look closely, it's like uh, 51.4 and 48.6 or something like that. Uh, Anyway, we're going to get into that. A lot to discuss with sort of like the final, 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 final things of the uh, 2022 uh, cycle. Um, but before we do that, let me remind you that the Josh Marshall Podcast is brought to you by Grady's Cold Brew Ice Coffee. If you're traveling for the holidays while you're packing up the kids, the dogs, the sweaters for your annual visit to your in-law's house, don't forget to pack a Grady's Cold Brew Kit because without proper planning, drinking a single cup from your mother-in-law's moldy coffee pot will be even harder on your stomach than watching an O-A-A-N over family dinner. Luckily, Grady's Cold Brew Kit makes it easy to drink, delicious Coffee on the go. Just toss in some bean bags, add water, stick the pouch in the fridge overnight, and you'll have smooth, flavorful coffee all week long. Ready to give it a swirl, get twenty five percent off at Grady's Coldbrew.com with promo code TPM. That's Grady's Coldbrew.com with promo code TPM. So um Kate Riga, you're you're you are back in our New York office. We have a we have a kind of a, a, a staff celebration tonight. So the whole gang is back geographically in one place. Uh how how's it feel being back in being back in the city. I know you're here, some, you know, it's not like you're never here, but still, it's, you know.
1: Yeah, no, it's you're weird because, so I've been back to the city a bunch since, you know, my boyfriend and I moved from here. We both have siblings here and a lot of friends here and everything. But this is my first time in the office since I left New York just before the pandemic hit. And it is weird. It almost is that feeling, you know, when you go back to like your school as an adult or something and it, Still smells exactly the same, and you still recognize all like the weird little idiosyncrasies of that space. But it feels as if you're like leafing back pages in your life to a chapter that is closed. I don't know; it's weird. It, it is melodramatic, it is
0: but <laughs> no, I mean it's and just for for our listeners, um, you know, we went remote about a week before everyone else did, but obviously around the same time, and um, we still have the same office. It has been opened in theory um since uh god i don't know probably early in 2021 uh and and a lot of the staff will come in on wednesdays just to get a little face time with each other but the point is is that we have never gone back to full in office that just hasn't happened and there's all sorts of reasons and you know we probably will on a you know hybrid basis at some point um but it is a pretty, it's still a pretty sharp disjuncture. I mean, I, we, we moved into that office in early 2009, probably when Kate was in middle school or something (laughs) like that, uh, early 2009. And so for me, from like January, 2009 till March of 2020, I was in that office basically every day for a decade, you know, not weekends, but you know, you get the idea. And, um, just now when, and I have not even Wednesdays, I tend not to uh, go in. It was, you know, largely cause I'm very COVID cautious and all that kind of nonsense. Um, but anyway, when, when, when Kate and I were talking and talking about, ah, this part of the office, that part of the office, it is that kind of weird thing of kind of like, wow, I remember it. Totally. You know, but it's like in, it's kind of stuck in amber three years, you know, three years on.
1: And alas, we have lost. Um, the, we used to have a little annex room kind of down the hallway from the office where we had a little studio where we could record the podcast. Yep. And that is no more. So, you know, for our listeners, uh, now got an, a nice little setup here uh, sitting on the floor of the nap room. So, you know, yeah. we're making it work. We're making it yeah, work. Exactly. Honestly, it sounds like the acoustics are going to. Are kind of good in here.
0: Well, you know, when we designed that, so in our in our New York office, and what Kate's talking about, we've as I said, we've had the we've had our New York office since two thousand nine. And then, um, a couple years before the pandemic, we leased another office space on the same floor, um, of the, of the same place, and then we had a studio, you know, our podcast studio there and all that kind of stuff. And this nap room we built probably god when you know, not too long after two thousand nine. And what I was gonna say though is, is it was built intentionally to have sound muffling acoustics, not because we Mm. thought we were going to have a podcast, but because it was supposed to be Zen and, you know, to, to get centered and get some space from the frenetic nature of the office. So all of the sound dampening is by design. So it, it actually works well as studio space. Totally. Yeah.
1: So we're, we're coming from you, coming to you from the big apple to talk about the big peach. The, yeah. the the juiciest peach. Obviously, we had our, as Josh said, big last senate race of the cycle. The midterms are finally over. We're officially in the twenty twenty four cycle. People, buckle up. Um, but there are like so many different pieces of the Georgia race that I just think are really fruitful for us to talk about. Huh. Fruit.
0: Yeah. Yeah. Yep. Um. So
1: go. I guess just to start with, kind of, okay. Let's talk about the race itself and what it was like watching the race. Because, Josh, you did a post on this that I'm interested by. I was like our our primary reporter covering it night up. It was me and um, John Light, one of our editors. So let's just kind of talk, like do a little... Talk about how we interact with watching the election results unfold and you can and maybe you can tell our listeners about your little your epiphany about uh, watching cable news on on election nights.
0: Yeah, well, I, you know, I've through just weirdness of the pandemic, I have watched uh, cable TV much less, Um, but certainly on political nights, on election nights, but also, you know. Presidential convention, you know, big political nights. um, I have always, you know, had TV on. You know, I'm either that's what that's how I'm seeing it, or at least part of it. And um, over the last, I don't know exactly when, sometime a couple years ago, I put together a Twitter list of basically number cruncher election analysts, for lack of a better word. And um, these people have always existed, um, but sort of in the, you know, the Nate Silver era, for lack of a better word, uh, it's become more of a thing. And a lot of young people coming up who kind of this is what they do, kind of understanding the sort of the nitty gritty nuts and bolts of election mechanics. Uh, and for many years, we had one of our alums, uh, Eric Kleefeld, who kind of did this in-house for us. Um, Eric worked for TPM for a number of years. He now works for Media Matters. Um, he's one of these people who on election night in, you know, Nebraska, he'll say, you know, we got to be looking at, you know, Fredburg County, because that's where it's all <laughs> going to be. That's the decisive place. And you're like, oh, okay, Fred Berg Count. You know, I'm just making this mm-hmm. up. But there are people who know all those kind of nitty gritty details. Um, and what this Twitter list has allowed me to do is put together uh, some of the folks who've been doing this forever, and some of these people coming up in their 20s who do it. And for, if you're not, if you've never been on Twitter, these lists are you basically curate a list. So you're just seeing, you know, kind of a couple dozen people kind of talking and the way that elections have evolved um by doing that i can just get a very granular in real time understanding of what is happening these are all these are people who are not providing commentary about who's who's the better candidate nothing to do with that it's very data centric um and when and and Things have changed even more now in the last two or three cycles with the growth of mail by vote, which was obviously became especially partisanized in the 2020 election. So it was always this way to some extent, but now... It's very hard to know what to make of the voting results in a certain county if you don't have a very, very crystal clear idea of, okay, is that all the mail ballots? Is it just the mail ballots which are going to lean heavily Democratic? Is it the same day? So you kind of can't really know until a certain county is completely done. Then you can, then all the kind of, different modes of voting that are favored by Republicans or Democrats, uh, that's all out of the mix. And anyway, this is a way to, it's the best way to, if you're obsessed obsessed about election results, to watch it in real time, because you understand what is happening at every point. And what I was struck by when I would glance occasionally at some TV, over on the TV, like, oh, Warnock is up. Oh my God, now Walker's up. It's back and forth. What's going to happen here? And that was all just nonsense. That wasn't happening. When, when I was listening to people who actually were paying attention to the details, it was, we certainly didn't know that Warnock was going to win from the beginning. But at each point, the evidence that we had was all pointing in that direction. So it was a fairly steady as it goes kind of thing. And... Um, there's a lot. There's a lot of reasons why that is the case with TV. Some of them sort of inevitable, which is that you've got to be pretty. You've got to be kind of pretty politically knowledgeable to make sense of this stuff, right? You can't be just someone who's like, oh, politics. You, you know, they, they, they're different counties. You know, you have to. You have to have, You have to be versed in it at some level. And also, uh, TV wants to create drama, but it just, as as Kate said, it's like an epiphany. Like, don't watch TV in election night. <laughs> Because you're just going to get a lot of nonsense that means nothing.
1: Yeah, I have stopped watching. I mean, I I haven't really ever watched cable news that much. Um, but, you know, I pretty much am either the, the head person or one of the people on our election night coverages. And I just like pretty much never watch cable news. And the thing is, like, while, you know, we tend to do live blogs on election night, which is I really love doing it because I think... It's such a, it's almost like having a group chat. I mean, a one-sided group chat with our readers where it's just kind of like you have more free reign to just put stuff in that you're like, I find this interesting or, you know, here's a tidbit that I came upon while I've been reporting on this or like just, you know, little stuff there that I think adds some like texture and and complexity, especially while there are some stretches while you're you're just waiting. And what you said about cable news is like, obviously, they have to fill that dead time. So that's when they do their dumb stuff. They're like, oh, Walker's creeping ahead, but like won't contextualize it. And and, you know, 90 percent of the outstanding vote is in Fulton County or whatever. Right. So right. But, and it's funny because during the Walker Warnock time, the majority of that dead time was like John and I were trying to find things to say that weren't just we got to see how turnout is in Atlanta, and then we're going to know how this is going. And that's how it was for a while, because in those earliest hours, it's funny because even if you were just kind of looking at those number crunchy guys on Twitter, Mm -hmm. you know, it was when you have just a spackling of the little counties who are the ones who are done first, it's hard to pull together a coherent narrative. Um, And especially because you can have kind of some onesies and twosies of counties where it's like a walker is running a point or two ahead of where he did last month. And you're like, OK, well, that could be the ball game, Right. You know, if he's running a point or two ahead. And then we we started to get, you know, you get Cobb County and you find out turnout is 92 percent of it what it was a month ago. And Warnock is even like improving on his margins. And then, you know, the race got called by like 1030 by everyone. So, I mean, it wasn't ultimately that big of a question just by virtue of where the outstanding vote was, which was all, you know, Warnock friendly territory. But it it really is funny also in the context of Twitter's at some point demise, we think going to demise um, because I, you know, our listeners probably know I'm like a big Twitter hater, but Twitter on election night, I think is like, twitter at its best it's like helpful it's informative you get the people who know the like friggin neighborhood by neighborhood of georgia right um you know and and in that way i guess maybe for me it's kind of supplanted cable news as the place where you can actually get a stream of information while you're waiting for stuff to come in but that's a little bit less like you know and then the horse racey, I guess, when in yeah. reality, we just kind of have a mountain of ballast that are getting counted in no particular order.
0: Yeah, no, that's that's my sense, too. And, and when I've thought about uh, Twitter, it, it's a huge amount of the time that I have spent on it, dedicated to it. When I'm honest with myself, it's like I can sort of justify like, okay, I need to sort of spread the word about TPM and I want to do this and I want to do that. But a huge percentage of it is just like my ADHD and inability to focus and all that stuff and my own like, you know, dopamine hits and stuff like that. But I have a similar sense kind of like an election, like that election list helps me. There's nothing else I can, there's no other place where I can get concentrated access to very reliable information and sort of self-correcting information. And um, I had a similar experience with a list I'd put together of experts about COVID. That was, you know, really, really helpful um, for me. And the one other example in the last few years is a couple of lists I've put together about Ukraine. Mm. One about the larger conflict, one specifically about the military dimensions of it. Um, And those are things that kind of like, it's not about me being obsessive or, you know, um, poor time management. It's just really, really valuable. Um, And, you know, my sense of like, you know, kind of watching that list and participating in it to some extent uh, was that from, I guess the polls closed, I think it's seven. And from maybe seven to nine o'clock, give or take, there was a steadily unfolding picture, which basically amounted to that in a series of small rural counties in North Georgia, Walker had actually managed to slightly increase his numbers in that area. But that basically everywhere else and critically in a number of mid-sized cities. So not, you know, not in 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 the Atlanta metro, but in smaller regional again mid-sized cities that uh Warnock was doing better there. And he was kind of do, you know outside of sort of rural north Georgia, he was doing slightly but significantly better. In most of the state. And so, and then by about nine o'clock, you just got to this point like, yep, looking good for Warnock. He's on, he's on path. Uh, But basically most of Metro Atlanta is not out. So like, you know, is it impossible that Walker somehow manages to improve his, his numbers in, in Metro Atlanta? Like not likely, but certainly not impossible. Or maybe they're just, maybe the turnout isn't there in, 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 in there. And, you know, so you just, then you just had like, and you were sort of alluding to this about an hour where it's like, Yep. Probably Warnock, but got to wait for uh, more votes in, in Metro Atlanta. And so we're just going to kind of sit here and wait.
1: Right. Totally. So can you, let's talk about the campaign itself. And we've talked about, obviously, Herschel Walker on this pod before. But there was an NBC piece out that kind of did a little post-mortem look inside the campaign. And it just brought to the fore a lot of stuff we were talking about. But there were just little details in there like that. At the very beginning, when Walker was seriously considering running, they brought in, you know, three consultancy type guys who spent two weeks putting together an opposition binder on him, which is, you know, what campaigns always do yep. to try to avoid surprises. It was 500 pages long and they didn't even have the abortion stuff in there. So, I mean, it well, wasn't it,
0: there. I didn't read what you're talking about. Mm-hmm. But they have because I remember a few months ago I read an article. And I think it's, it's referring to the same stuff. And like, he basically saw the dossier and is like, you guys are fired. I don't, you know, I don't yeah, want to hear this. This one
1: said that I think there were disputed accounts of why these relationships untethered, but yeah. Well, I guess he
0: didn't take it well, probably. Right. Is, is and the, yeah. this
1: at least also had his reaction be like, it's fine. You know, I face tougher. It's going to be fine. And the thing is like, Oh my God. Even just kind of the basic nuts and bolts. Like it's been a fodder for jokes that every single time Herschel Walker's on TV, he's got like Lindsey Graham glued to his shoulder every single time. Or Ted
0: Cruz. Right. Or, Those two yeah. in
1: particular. And the reason why is because they kept telling him and though throughout, throughout Herschel Walker only did very friendly media, like only kind of Fox News and right wing stuff. But they wanted him to go on and to like plug the friggin' website so they could get some donations because their, their oh, fundraising okay. was anemic and he kept straying off message. So that's why they glued him to these other guys to be like, and don't forget to go to Herschelwalker.com or what have you.
0: It's very the whole, I mean, it's funny because he um I saw a day later, the sort of the key part of his concession speech. And it was very striking, sad that this has to be striking but it was, I'm not sure I would say, I mean, it wasn't not gracious, but generally gracious is about your opponent. But it was very like, you know, I lost, not going to make any excuses, you know, didn't didn't come together. But I'd like to thank everybody who supported me and, you know, keep believing in America, keep believing in the constitution. Then he said, keep believing in our elected officials. Um, and you're like, okay, I'll, I'll give you that. Like, that's a, you know. He wasn't Trump. He wasn't yes. coming up with nonsense about how he'd been cheated or it wasn't fair or whatever. And and a number of people have said to me, and I think this is probably right to some extent. Some of that sports, you know, in it, with the exception of of like boxing, where some boxers have like never, you know, basically never lost in the ring, right? Maybe once at the end of their career. That in team sports, even the best you're losing 30, 40% of the time. So you get used to losing and, and you don't, you don't lose and then say like, oh, well, it was really unfair. I mean, no one, no one, that's just not a, that's not part of what team sports are about. Um, but in any case, it just, I was, I, I don't have a lot of positive feelings about Herschel Walker, but I was happy that he, he, Ended his campaign in a pretty stand up, dignified way. So yeah,
1: I've I've wrestled throughout with feeling that. I mean, when you take the sum total of the accusations from women in his life, it's hard to arrive at the conclusion that this is a good man. You know, I mean, he it's a has challenge. been violent. He has been coercive. Um, but at the same time, I also did feel th- throughout just kind of gross, like watching him be unable to kind of coherently string a sentence together, much less kind of approach anything close to a policy position. Like it did feel exploitative to me at the mm-hmm. same time. So maybe those two things aren't even necessarily in conflict, but yeah, that's can be kind both. of where I ended. It can be both. And,
0: and I mean, I it, I, it doesn't um, well, I mean, maybe it does at some level, but it doesn't touch the, abusive and uh abusive and selfish aspects of the person we got to know during the campaign but in terms of the sort of the ability you know uh to be perfectly frank cognitive ability football professional football i mean you know this this we can't know specifically um but you know we have seen this that 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 uh professional football has devastating effects on on some people and that's sh- you know
1: yeah so let's now that that one is kind of in the books let's talk just a little bit about the stacy abrams kemp rematch because it's something i've been thinking about a lot you know when she first ran against kemp in 2018 she only lost by like a point and a half like it yep. was really close and that as you know as we all know kind of threw her up into stardom. She was a, the, the future leader of the Democratic Party. She started immediately kind of getting considered as maybe she'll run for Senate. Maybe she'll be a, a presidential possibility at one time. And then she ran again this time and got trounced. I yeah. mean, she lost by almost 10 points. Yeah. And I've been thinking about why. And I think there are a few things. One of which, Brian Kemp, I think, pretty masterfully uh, transitioned his refusal you know, to let Trump steal the the election in his state last time, into a greater theme of "I am a moderate, I am to Trump's left," and yeah. fundamentally that is not true. Like ideologically, he's basically has the same positions as Herschel Walker, if Herschel Walker actually held any of those positions. But like, it was just this one time where he kind of didn't sell out his entire state, and that was enough for him to, I think, really successfully paint himself as almost a Brad Raffensperger. Type of like I have integrity. I'm kind of an old school Republican, which is somewhat of an incredible transformation, especially given that he—I mean, on something like abortion, which Kemp or which uh, Stacey Abrams did try to go hard on it, and it didn't work. But he is like you know really extreme anti-abortion.
0: Yeah, on on all of the. On all of the non-big lie, mm-hmm. sort of like the Italians tried to sabotage our election kind of stuff, he's basically indistinguishable from Abbott in Texas, um, from DeSantis in uh, Florida. I mean, there might be, I'm not sure that's 100% sure, uh Accurate on Desantis in the sense of I don't think Kemp has really gone in for this kind of you know aggressively anti-trans uh, don't say gay you know all that kind of mm-hmm. stuff that just, but basically he's a very conservative Republican governor right and um, I think I think two th- I, there's a few different things one I think very big thing is that you know 2022 was a remarkably strong year for democrats given the context that it was right. run in it's a midterm election a lot of you know presidents on po- all the kind of stuff we know 2018 was not that mm-hmm. it was basically a wave year for the democrats so just to start with that makes a big difference right there um the other thing is is that uh for a number of for a number of reasons uh kemp is now a popular incumbent governor Mm-hmm. And running as an as a popular incumbent governor is very different from running as a kind of semi scary Republican running for governor. That's just that's different. Um, so that also uh, you know played a big role. And even though he was definitely no Raffensperger, the fact is he, you know. He opposed Trump enough to become a big enemy for Trump. That's true. Like, even if Trump wasn't his enemy, let me get this straight in my head, he was Trump's enemy. Mm -hmm. And kind of like, that's a binary thing. You're either Trump's enemy or you're his toady. And he became Trump's enemy. And I do think for um, a lot of, for a significant amount of Georgians could, you know, and probably, you know anti-Trump Republicans or non-Trump Republicans, even for some middle-of-the-road Democrats could kind of say, you know what, it's, things are going okay here in Georgia. He's done well. And I don't have to feel like I'm, I'm kind of giving a, a vote to Team Trump because clearly he's not Team Trump. Right. And in a basic sense, in the most fundamental <laughs> sense, he's not. Yes, he's very conservative, but what we know with Trump is that that kind of doesn't matter. Mm hmm. It's team being on Team Trump kind of has nothing to do with that. That's why, you know, uh, Kemp was an enemy and Mehmet Oz was like best pals, even though Mehmet Oz is just some like New York doctor who probably, you know, to the extent he has any politics, probably basically a Democrat, you know, pro-choice, blah, 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 blah. Um, so, no, I think that had a big um, I think that had a big impact. And yeah. You know, the one other thing, though, I'll say is that um, he 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 could not have known that he was going to weather Trump's fury, you know, and I'll give him that. You know, I mean, it, you should be able to lose your political career to not overthrow an election, but still, he didn't know it would, would come out that way. And I think that helped him.
1: Yeah, I also think it's a testament to how effective the right wing um kind of hate machine can be because ever since abrams star rose so aggressively in 2018 she has become one of their biggest targets you know much like they do to pelosi aoc Mm -hmm. you know what what do all these people have in common this Stacey abrams is a black woman who is not really skinny i mean she's like kind of everything that the right hates in one package um And I think that took, I think that had an effect. And I think it
0: also,
1: the same way that Kemp was kind of successfully able to cloak himself in this uh, moderate uh, suit, she, because of this was kind of felt more, you know, you can use the word progressive or you can use the word radical or far right wing or left wing. But I think she did feel that way for people, even though in essence, I mean, much of her campaign was kind of being like... You know, a a pro Biden Democrat, which is you know, it's hard to paint as a progressive unless you're like totally, you're you know, it's hard to paint as like a super lefty unless you're totally eaten up by brain worms, you know. Right, right. Um, But I don't know if you saw there was a a like fifty part thread from her campaign manager today. Did you see this? No, I did not. Where she basically the campaign manager. Is very sad and was basically just saying like Abrams kind of helped construct this launch pad for all these other candidates, but that work while it launched other people became her millstone. um, Basically, because it put her into the scope of the right wing in a way that she contributed to building this machine Mm -hmm. and then paid the price for it and that kind of and I and it's funny because in the uh, Atlantic Journal Constitution write-up of this thread. The Warnock people are super mad about it because they're um, they're reading it as she's kind of taking credit for his yeah, yeah. candidacy. Even though I honestly don't think that's what she was saying. I think her point is a fair one, which is that yeah. she, she helped build a machine, which we've now had consecutive cycles where Democrats have won big in Georgia and that's huge. I mean, Georgia was not even on the map for a really long time and all of a sudden we've got like back to back data points, you know. I, but I, I think it's a fair point and I think it did contribute because whenever you kind of, you know, if you're a rising star in the Democratic Party who is not a white man, you're you're automatically gonna be a target.
0: I mean, even even if you're a right man, white man, right. you can still be a target. Yeah. No, I think if I think if you if you would kind of take the overall gloss of Fox News over the last four years, who is Stacey Abrams? She is a complaining black woman. Mm-hmm. that's the thing it's not even it's not even the angry black woman caricature that they portrayed. just complaining, always got a complaint Stacey Abrams. oh, it's Stacey Abrams. Mm-hmm. So I think that absolutely did, and um it's funny because, like you know, the Warnock people sometimes reporters overplay how miffed one group is or something like that. Mm-hmm. But to the extent they're miffed, I mean, take it on the chin, guys. You're right. going, you won. Come you on. Won. You won. And she did not win. And she's he probably had, not going to. Now your gonna... guy
1: gets to take a six-year break. Come yeah, exactly. <laughs>
0: exactly. And I don't think, um, at least not in the near future, I don't think Stacey Abrams is, if she wanted to, going to run. She's not going to run for governor again. Hmm. And since there's two Democratic senators, he's probably not going to run for Senate. So this is a a, a very tough loss uh, for Stacey Abrams. And I will say this, I talked to someone yesterday who is one of these people who really knows the details um, of, you know, in this state and that state, what work was done here, what work was done there, how much resources, you know, the, the just the... The kind of person who knows the knows the details. And this person was saying, you know, you look at the kind of what I said before about the sort of the mid the the midsize cities in Georgia focusing there, you know, because obviously you, you, um, you know, a big part of Abrams things is you get participation up in 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 Metro Atlanta and that that can really be a game changer. And clearly it was a game changer, but it wasn't just that. It was also do a lot of organizing in these mid-sized cities in Georgia. And this person um, said, uh, not just clearly, but kind of it not even being a question. She didn't get the benefit of it, Stacey Abrams. But she did a lot she did the legwork here. Now, obviously it's not like Warnock did no legwork. Like I said, he's 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 stood for election five times in two years. And um, you know, give him all sorts of credit, but there's credit to go around. And totally. and she absolutely um and it's not just Raphael Warnock, it's Joe Biden. Mm-hmm. And it's and it's the fact that that, you know, we don't know where things are gonna be in 2024. Um, but there's little question that which way Georgia goes will pay a play a very big role in who in who wins that election. Like if you know if it turns out the kind of like it's that uh, Democrats aren't even in the game in Georgia, that'll mean like it's not it's really not looking good, right? You know they don't Democrats don't have to win Georgia to win the election, but it it's 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 a swing state now. It's a, I think I it's mean, still a red leaning one, but it's a swing state, and that's a remarkable. If,
1: if Florida is as far gone as it seems. They do kind of need need to win Georgia.
0: Well, I mean, you know, there's there's they had a bit of a margin this time, even though all those things about, you know, that it was only what a few tens of thousands of vote if you kind of take Mm. all the close races. Um, But, yeah, it's critical. And I do think, um, you know, again, I I don't know. uh, I doubt that um, I, I I doubt the Warnock people. I hope the warnock people are not too broken up about a twitter thread um but to the extent that they might be like guys you know you won right have some grace have some grace
1: okay let's switch gears um for the end part of the show here because yesterday wednesday the supreme court heard this really important case that we've been tracking and writing about for a while morvey harper which in essence is republicans in the north carolina legislature being pissy that the North Carolina Supreme Court tossed out two of their very, very gerrymandered maps and basically tossed out the first was like, go back to the drawing board and do something that's, you know, less unconstitutional. And so they like made minimal changes, sent it back in and they were like, okay, no, we're going to now bring in special masters kind of thing. So the legislators are now bringing that to the court with the independent state legislature's theory, which is this super, super literal reading of these two clauses in the Constitution, which say that legislatures get to set the time, manner, and place of elections. And they're arguing that that word legislature chews out every other organ of state government, which means only the legislature gets to, you know, draw the maps, uh, pass election laws, administer elections with no checks by the state courts with no uh or
0: even the executive branch.
1: W- well that's a whole yeah, other issue. No guidelines from uh state constitutions. And you're right, under a maximal reading, that could wipe out the governor's veto, um, you know, ballot referendums passed by voters, the whole thing, making it just be the legislature. And the thing about it that I think is why you've got like historians and political scientists in particular just up in arms in a way I haven't even seen over other things is like, you can just go to any kind of other clause of the election. Say, look at the commerce clause, which is that Congress has the power to legislate commerce, essentially, but no one reads that and is like, okay, so the presidential veto doesn't apply, right? It's just that nowhere else do you read the the vesting of power in this one entity to nullify all the checks and balances that have been kind of drawn in. But that's what they're presenting. And, and you know, the brief history here is that they tried to get the Supreme Court to intervene and knock down these like court appointed maps before the midterms. Uh, a majority said no, but Alito, Thomas and Gorsuch and the dissent said they think North Carolina has the stronger arguments and they would like to see this case again, doing the classic thing they do now where they're just like, hey, bring this back. We'll give you the decision you want. And then Kavanaugh wrote a concurrence, which was more, which was showed us a little bit less which way he's going. He said, this is going to be a recurring issue that we should deal with. So we kind of came into oral arguments yesterday With, with that data And with what they'd previously written, we basically know Gorsuch, Alito, Thomas are like all in on the maximal reading of the independent state legislature theory. Kavanaugh has been at least kind of curious about it, maybe amenable to it when you kind of link this with his previous writings. Roberts has been a bit back and forth, but most recently he has written that he thinks state courts do have a role to play in in redistricting. So it seems like he would probably be a no, at least against the most maximal reading. And then Barrett is just like too new mystery. We have no idea how she feels. So going into this, a lot of times, I think when you're listening to oral arguments, I see this a lot that people get a little bit carried away, like some Especially Barrett and Kavanaugh really, really like to sound sympathetic to both sides, and I see a lot of times people kind of cling on that, and they're just like, "Oh, you know, maybe this will," and it's like they they still vote with the conservatives almost every time, you know. Yeah, so yeah, yeah. But but that being said, yesterday when I was listening, Barrett seemed very very skeptical. and The thing is why I kind of stopped you when you were saying the executive branch thing is that North Carolina in this case is arguing against all those checks like state courts and state constitutions, but they say it's okay to have a gubernatorial veto. So it's like, what kind of baby splitting is that? Yeah, I mean,
0: it's, it's, um, yeah, no, it's, it's, it's a, it's an absurd hair splitting or you know kind of pick your own adventure as long as you're on this kind of absurd theory that you sort of like well as long as we're just kind of making it up as we go along we'll come right. up with that but I, i'll put on my historian hat here to to say two things and i think this is why there is a kind of a an almost feral pushback um from historians political scientists which is that the the argument here is entirely originalist, you know, supposed originalist. Right. You're just saying kind of like, hey, that's what it says. I don't know what to tell you. It says legislature um, because I don't think anybody is able to make much of an argument on the merits, like you know what I think for just elections, we should make it that it's only about legislators and not about courts or presidents or constitutions Like what? What? Like <laughs> no one's even no one is even really trying to make that argument. I guess you can kind of say, well, legislative branch closest to the people, blah blah blah. But again, no one's even really. It, it's such an absurd argument. No one's even making that sort of argument for it they're just kind of saying again a supposed originalist thing like hey that's what it says what do you want me to tell you it says state legislator i think historians and political scientists particularly historians i think there are a few cases where it is so clear that's not <laughs> what anybody meant it is a hundred percent you just just look at it every single possible way that's not what they meant and it's not like you can say wow they just kind of worded it poorly but trust us that's not what they meant they didn't word it poorly Again, there's lots of things in the Constitution that you could just take, like, you know, Congress shall make laws interstate commerce. Does that mean Congress decides what gets sold? Like, of, of course, <laughs> yeah. I mean, there's, you could just say all sorts of stupid things if you wanted to. But the other point is, and this goes both to basic logic, but also something that is, goes very deep in the basic ideas of that period of our history in the 1770s and 1780s. And that is this, the constitution is the fundamental document that creates everything else. So the legislature of a state doesn't exist in a vacuum. It exists because the state constitution created it and the state constitution created the courts. It created the the executive and that constitution could have decided to say courts don't get to look at, you know, the point is, the Constitution is the fundamental thing. Now, to me, since I was sort of trained with this stuff, that's sort of like, well, of course it is. And that, and since as Americans we're sort of trained in this, um, in this kind of ideology, for lack of a better word, that that's what a Constitution is. It's not obvious that should be the case, but it is the case in our system. The Constitution creates all this stuff. So the idea you can say, well, it doesn't really matter what the Constitution says because. It just It's just the legislature, just kind of floating out there in space, and they can do whatever they want. Again, it's so counter to something that is kind of as close as you can get to the foundation-level stuff about political theory in the United States, which, again, is that the Constitution is this fundamental document that creates the basic rules, not only the basic rules of governance, but the basic actors, in government, it creates a state legislature. You know, there's a sort of a separate point where there's a, there is a clause in the federal constitution that says federal government guarantees a Republican form of government in each state. It's never really been kind of litigated precisely what that means, but it may place some check on the fact, like I, I, I might've said, I was going to say, constitution could decide there is no state legislature. I don't know. You know, you could whip it up any way you whip it up any way you want. Well, the federal constitution says you have to have a Republican form of government. And that probably means you've got to have something like a state legislature. But even like what I think it's in in Nebraska, they have a unicameral legislature. Mm -hmm. You know, it's again, it's it is it is historically and to the extent that we care about originalism, ideologically backwards and absurd. We know basic things about how people in the 1770s and 1780s thought about the basic architecture of government, um, and maybe we don't care about how they thought about it in the 1780s. But if you're originalist, you have to care about it because that's the whole argument. So that I think is why you have this again, sort of, sort of feral response mm-hmm. from historians and, and political scientists because it's just absurd.
1: Right. I mean, and not like the Supreme Court cares at all about precedent, but they have just taken cases like very recently. You know, the big one is kind of the big redistricting fights that we've had of late where they, you know, they close the courthouse doors. The federal courts can no longer hear partisan gerrymandering claims. Okay, In that decision, the softener was but state courts can litigate it. So there is still going to be like an avenue. That was 2015. I mean, that wasn't that long ago. Most of the same people were on the bench. And so right. and it came up a lot, you know. And then also there are just, you know, other issues. Like uh, Barrett brought up the fact that the court has also said that redistricting via ballot referendums, you know, when voters say we want an, an independent uh, commission or what have you, they said that's OK. So now you've got North Carolina trying to argue that governing redistricting by clauses in the state constitution is not permissible. However, you might have had the redistricting clause in that state constitution via a ballot referendum, which the court just said is okay. So, I mean, it really is like a, just a difficult argument to make.
0: Yeah. It's also, I, I I mean, they're both, I think both arguments are fundamentally wrong, but to the extent that you would say, could one be more wrong than the other? The one they're considering, I think, is more wrong, because I could see maybe some argument that you can say, I and mean, it goes into the delegation thing that um, mm. judicial conservatives are very big into at the federal level, that you could say, look, this was supposed to be left to the political process. State legislature, a, a, a correct reading of what that means is the political process in that state, that's who decides it. That's kind of what that means. You've got courts, you've got a governor, blah, 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 blah. I could see some argument to say, you know what? It's supposed to be left to the political process. It's not okay to come in and say, all right, we're going to set up a, you know, a council of four political scientists and they're going to do their kind of academic hocus pocus and figure it out. That's Mm -hmm. not okay. It's supposed to be a political process. Um, I don't think that's a good argument because states can... Make decisions themselves. I mean, that's it's really up to it's really up to the states. But that would be a more plausible argument. But as you said, they've already said that one doesn't work.
1: Right. So how this
0: more ridiculous one could work is, is beyond me.
1: And this is just a bad vehicle for this case because the North Carolina legislature has already dictated the way that redistricting fights go, you know, that that it goes to a three panel of judges who are allowed to require remedial maps. So, I mean, it's just you, you, you we don't live in an era where like a ridiculous argument is enough to make you feel confident about the outcome of the court. But if. If we went in kind of expecting six voices raised in unison in support of the independent state legislature theory, which was not, you know, off the table, that's not what happened. And I think we might be left with some kind of like middle row type thing where they end up giving the federal judiciary more uh you know micromanaging powers into how state courts interpret state laws and constitutions than there was right. before, um, which is more of this court's kind of quest to empower itself. Um Which is obviously, you know, not great, but that's a far cry from the, we're now going to throw all the power to the most gerrymandered body uh, and let them control everything having to do with elections. And again, obviously that's still on the table. Maybe all these skeptical noises they made at oral arguments will come to nothing. But I was at least left with the immediate impression that we went into this like five alarm fire. There's a lot to be worried about. And I think left feeling more like mild concern.
0: Right. Right, I I would say you know one of, and I'm not sure about this exactly, but I would think, I mean, it is it is the case at the federal level, Congress could remove jurisdiction over. Mm basically over any issue it wants from the courts. Um, Obviously, it has to get the president's signature because, again, that whole thing about how the Constitution makes the rules, uh, (laughs) legislature isn't a kind of a thing floating, you know, kind of a platonic ideal floating out in space. (laughs) Um, But it can do that. And um, I would, it would be Constitution by Constitution. But I suspect there are many states in which if the legislature if the legislature decided it could do this on its own, it could say, state courts, you don't have any role to play in interpreting election law in this state. And if they could pass that and get the governor to sign that, that's kind of all she wrote. Um, but that is, again, that is operating within the constitutional framework of that state. Now, maybe... There's a lot of different state constitutions. Um, maybe that is not permissible in some states. And that's fine. And the other thing is fine. The the And you kind of alluded to what makes this particularly dangerous. And I think it is fine to point this out because it is why the judicial right is that into this, mm-hmm. which is that you've got a lot of states that are so gerrymandered that basically – the, the legislature is under permanent Republican management, um,
1: and far right Republican management a lot of the time, like kind of further right than their constituents. Sometimes. Well, far, I mean, look,
0: you have the the sort of the always the best example of this is is Wisconsin.
1: Yep, uh-huh. we
0: have seen that Wisconsin routinely, routinely, whether it's whether it's um, you know for for governor or Senate, it's always close. It's always super close, and we saw that this cycle, uh, Evers won just by a bit, Johnson won just by a bit. But basically the state legislature never doesn't have super majorities yep. for the Republicans. And so now we saw in Pennsylvania, you know, Democrats just what is it they just got back the house and then Michigan, they won back the Democrats won back the whole thing. So we kind of see that even in these heavy heavily gerrymandered states, it's still possible. But basically the reason the judicial right is so into this is because It basically just makes sure that Republicans are in charge of everything forever and can kind of decide when they want to lose an election. Um, And that's obviously a pretty big deal. And if you think I'm cynical for saying that, you know, the country's been around for 250 years almost. And the Constitution's been around for like 230 years. It's a funny time to just be coming up with this idea. Right. It's kind of out of the blue um, and it's very tailored for uh, the present situation where you have a series of swing states that determine everything, that almost always have Republican legislatures and often have Democratic governors.
1: Right. Exactly. And if you've got
0: this thing, you just kind of settle that problem.
1: Which is why I thought Kagan had a really good moment where she's been taking on this role in oral arguments lately where she like takes the arguments out of legal abstraction and kind of goes through their real world harms, which I think is really helpful for more like, you know, casual observers of this stuff. But she was talking about how and, you know, she wasn't saying Republicans specifically, but it was obviously aimed at Republican legislators, how they have incentives often to stop people from voting, which we see all the time. You know, they are trying to get reelected. And the easiest way for Republicans who are increasingly a minority party to be reelected is often to pick their pool of voters or to make it harder for people who are likely to not vote for them. And I think while that is like kind of, you know, probably obvious to to us and our listeners, it's a nice thing to bring up when in these arguments, you keep hearing, well, don't you want the power of redistricting, you know, in the body that is chosen by the people rather than these unelected judges? And it's like, but they're not really elected by the people. I mean, we, we have entered now into our least competitive terrain ever when it comes to these gerrymandered states. And so you know, it's exactly what you said. It's just a good reminder that the driving thrust behind this is not, well, let's get the Constitution right. It's (laughs) let's throw this ball to the place where we can most dependably think that Republicans are going to be in charge. And that's going to be states where for at least 20 years, they have just contorted it to the, you know, to the amount that it doesn't even really matter what the will of the voters are, because they are just going to keep winning.
0: Yeah, and it 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 really is um it it really is an example that it, it it's just that cynical, it's just that cynical, and to the point you know I was making those sort of arguments before about 1770s and 1780s, but another pretty compelling argument is why has this only occurred to someone after a quarter of a millennium if this is so obvious why is it only occurring to people now and you could kind of say that we didn't really get into the federal uh, federal judicial review of anything to do with states until the late 19th century okay fine why did it take 150 years <laughs> to occur to anybody it's just nonsense and and it really it's one of those rare issues that is about as straightforward as that okay okay I guess we've done, we've produced a full hour of quality content. So (laughs) let me remind uh, you, the listeners, that the Josh Marshall Podcast is brought to you by Grady's Cold Brew Ice Coffee. You can get 25% off at Grady'sColdBrew.com with promo code TPM. That's Grady'sColdBrew.com with promo code TPM.
1: All right. See you next week. Later.